Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. In 1994, O.J. Simpson stood accused of murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and her friend, Ron Goldman. The trial dominated the news for months. As the lead prosecutor in that trial, Marsha Clark soon became a household name. But three years earlier, Marsha Clark handled another high-profile case that also garnered national headlines, the murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer. She successfully secured the guilty verdict of Robert Bardo, who was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. As a continuation of last week's episode about Rebecca's murder, we speak with Marsha about that trial and the legal ramifications that occurred as a result. As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Olshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Wondery and Treefort, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is the second season of Killer Psyche. I've spent five decades studying people's minds through my work as an FBI profiler and psychiatric nurse. I've interviewed lots of murderers, including serial killers. And the question of why they did it is what I get asked time and time again. It is difficult to get a satisfying answer without diving deep into their mindsets. So that's what we're doing. 
and I will give you my best analysis in this series of what made them do what they did. This episode is The Murder of Rebecca Schaefer, Part 2. So, Marsha, how did you get involved in the Rebecca Schaefer case? Well, I got assigned. I mean, at the time, I was in the special trials unit that handled all the high-profile murder cases and the more complex death penalty cases. And it was a very small unit at that time. There's like five of us. So it was going to be one of us because it was going to be a high-profile case. And I think I was next up. Didn't this start out as a death penalty case? It started out like many of them do as death eligible, which doesn't mean it's going to be a death penalty case necessarily. It just means that the charge allows for it. And so this was a murder by means of lying in wait. That's a special circumstance in the law. Mm -hmm. And when you have a murder with an allegation of a special circumstance, in this case, it was lying in wait, an ambush murder, then you can go for the death penalty or choose not to. goes either way. But the other possibility is life without the possibility of parole. This was, what, 32 years ago? I recall seeing an interview where you revealed that at the time you were newly pregnant with your first child and you were about to meet with Rebecca's parents. Can you share with us what was going on there? Yeah, I was pregnant with my first son and I was at that stage of pregnancy where you can almost button your jacket, but not quite. And so it was kind of hideable and I really wanted to hide it because these poor people just lost their only daughter. And Mm -hmm. I think the very last thing I wanted to do was be a reminder of that. So I I tried very hard to not show it for as long as possible. And then these cases do take a while to get to trial. So at the time I first met them, it was easy to hide. And by the time we were actually seeing each other more regularly because it was time to go to trial, I had already given birth. And so I danced around the issue, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Robert Bardo. Interesting, interesting person. I was a psychiatric nurse for 10 years before I became an FBI agent. And in researching him, I saw that he was institutionalized at the tender age of 15. And my experience, which was I was a psych nurse between 70 and 80, was that for a teenager to be institutionalized, meaning the parents are told, your child is very, very ill and needs to be in an inpatient facility is very significant. And of course, those kinds of illnesses that result in hospitalizations, schizophrenia, thought disorders, very, very serious. And then fast forward years later, he attempts to buy a gun at a gun shop. And the gun shop owner said, this guy was so obviously disturbed mentally. He would not sell him a gun. And I think we've all heard the stories, gun shop owners will sell anybody a gun. But this gun shop owner was so alarmed that not only did he personally say, I'm not going to sell him a gun, he made sure all of his employees knew who this guy was and not to sell him a gun. So that said, why did his attorney decide to go for second-degree murder instead of pleading his client not guilty by reason of insanity? So a couple things here. 
Number one, he was not that obviously florid as you've painted it. He was institutionalized for a brief period of time, not long. And he knew how to keep it together at certain points. That particular gun store owner, I'm not, I'm not remembering clearly what mm-hmm. the issue was or what Bardo said to him to alarm him. I wish there were more gun store owners like that, I'll tell you. But, but he didn't, he was not somebody walking around talking to himself or grabbing at imaginary things in the sky at all. And so there were times he could really seem to many and many had contact with him. Just um, a crazy fan of Rebecca Schaefer. Bear in mind, too, that she was not the first actress he stalked. He tried to stalk Madonna. He tried to stalk Tiffany. He tried to stalk Debbie Gibson. So Rebecca was actually the last one that he had tried to make contact with. And it just so happened that she was at a point in her life just before she would have enough stardom to have real protection and a layer between her and the rest of the world. She was out there. She was living in this apartment that really didn't have security. And she had to go open the door herself. I don't think there was a camera. Many of the things that we take for granted today were not in existence back then. Mm -hmm. And he was able to take advantage of that. And the second thing is, not guilty by reason of insanity is very difficult to prove. Mm -hmm. It's no easy thing. And, And people bandy around this term a lot. Why don't you go for what we call not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity? Well, because the standard is extremely high. You have to prove that he did not understand the nature and quality of his act, did not understand it was against the law, had no ability to control his actions in that regard. So, I mean, there's a lot to prove there. He couldn't have made that defense if he tried, because, as I said, Robert Bardo was not that florid. And I've seen clients I've had since I've been handling criminal appeals that had much more disturbed thinking and much more difficulty in keeping it together, so to speak, and having a grasp on reality than he did. He was aware of what he was doing. He was aware it was wrong. All his actions showed that, including, of course, the secretive way that he went about preparing for the crime and took some time to do so, buying the book Catcher in the Rye to imitate Chapman, who also carried that book when he killed John Lennon. There were many things that he did to prepare and, and the letters that he wrote and kept did not send, indicating an, an advancing hostility toward Rebecca, but he hid them. And then when he committed the crime itself, he fled and destroyed evidence or tried to as he was leaving and fled back to Tucson. All of this is indicative of someone who is aware of his actions, is aware that they're wrong and is trying to escape. So All of that is going to take you way out of the ambit of an insanity plea. You mentioned that he was lying in wait, and we're going to get more into that. But circling back to the death penalty, which you mentioned is an option, what resulted in it being taken off the table in exchange, I understand, for a bench trial? Could you walk us through that? A bench trial is where the judge sitting by himself determines whether or not you've proven the case instead of a jury. Happens a lot. Bench trials are favored by both sides, usually, if you have the right kind of judge. And by the right kind of judge, I mean someone who is acceptable to both sides. Usually someone who is very good, very smart, very neutral. In this case, we had one of the best on the bench ever. He was a real gift, Judge Dino Flagoni, who was a genius, truly. 
and also a very fair guy. And he would have no hesitation in finding someone not guilty if he didn't think it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So he was somebody that you could look to to be very fair and very smart. So that was already, you know, an attractive thing. And it's also, of course, much faster. It's a much more certain proceeding in terms of not worrying about things going wrong, so to speak. Jurors don't understand very frequently that anything they do, looking at a television show they shouldn't look at, reading an article they shouldn't read, talking to someone they shouldn't talk to, all of these things can put a verdict in jeopardy. A judge isn't going to do that. So in a way, it protects your verdict. It makes things more streamlined. It makes things very reliable. And we happen to have the perfect judge for that. And so that's why a bench trial was an attractive option. As well, in terms of the death penalty, it was, I'm sure, it was of concern to the defense that she was such a vulnerable, innocent, and sympathetic victim. I'm sure they were very worried that a jury would vote for death because of that. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you don't want to be in a case where extraneous factors like that can impact something as serious as a sentence. So it seemed the fairest thing to do for both sides and the best thing to do, because the other part of death penalty cases is when a jury votes for death, the appeals go on literally forever, for mm-hmm. years and years, decades, very commonly in California. So for the purpose of everyone's peace of mind and resolution, it is much preferable to have a sentence of life without parole that does not carry the nonstop, endless litigation that can be very disturbing to all sides. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with SimpliSafe. Its advanced technology protects every room, window, and door of your home while cameras keep watch for suspicious activity 24-7, all for less than a dollar a day. And there's no long-term contract, ever. I love Simply Safe because it's so straightforward and easy to install. Knowing that my home is protected 24-7 gives me so much peace of mind. It's great that I can always check on my home through the app on my phone. Protect your home today. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash psyche. That's simplysafe.com slash psyche. There's no safe like Simply Safe. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. One of the things I noticed 
a name, I noticed. Dr. Park Elliot Dietz. Dr. Dietz actually spoke when I was in training to be a profiler. He spoke at the FBI Academy. In particular, I recall to our profiling class. And I was very surprised to see in the process of researching this case that he testified for the defense that Bardo suffered from schizophrenia. That surprised me because many, many times he testified for the prosecution. And as I recall, some very high profile cases, including the Andrea Yates case, the woman that drowned her five children back in 2001, that she was not mentally ill. But in this case, he says he's testifying that Bardo is schizophrenic and therefore not in control of his actions. How do you counter Dr. Dietz's claim or his diagnosis? With the evidence, I mean, the amount of planning that went into this murder, the behavior before and after the murder was indicative of somebody who was certainly in control of his faculties. Was he a very disturbed person? Yes, of course he was. He wasn't normal, but that didn't mean he didn't understand the nature and quality of his act and what he was doing. He did. So we could show the preparation he went into. He had to get help, actually, from his brother to buy a gun. He managed to do that. Like I said, the letters that we found that were hidden in his house also indicated planning thought went into this and the building hostility showed very clear awareness of what he was doing and the effect that it was against the law and wrong. And then, of course, his behavior after the fact. So the evidence itself really was in, it was enough of a signpost. He managed to get her address by paying a private investigator who was able to do a search at the DMV and gave him her address. All of this planning and all of the efforts he made to prepare and get to her showed somebody who had certainly an emotional disorder, but not mm -hmm. someone who was schizophrenic or not in control of his actions, which he certainly was. On the day in question as well, there were multiple indications that he knew exactly what he was doing. Remember, he comes with a loaded gun to her apartment. And when he's on the street, he goes to a pay booth and calls his sister and tells her, you're going to hear about me. You're going to hear something. And she doesn't know what he's talking about because he's not telling her, but she knows it's not good. And then he, he tries to tell him to come home. Whatever he's thinking or he's going to do, he just let go and come home. He did not listen. He went to her door once. He was surprised by the fact that she came out personally to see him. He being surprised and in shock, just handed her something. And I can't remember what it was, whether it was a book, a record, but he did, he gave her that. And then she said, I've got to go. I've got to get ready. She was getting ready for an audition. He left and went to a restaurant nearby, went to the men's room and made sure the gun was loaded and basically got his courage up and then returned to her door. Now she couldn't see who was at her door a second time. She was expecting somebody to drop off a script. So she went down and this time he was prepared and had the gun behind his back. So when she opened the door, he shot her. Mm -hmm. All of these actions make it pretty clear, at least it did to me, that he was very much in control of his actions. He knew what he was doing, carefully prepared for it and did it. Now, a very helpful thing was that Park Deeds 
recorded, videoed his interview with Bardo and had him reenact the crime, reenact shooting. And in doing so, Bardo physically acted out what happened when he went to her door. And he said, he went to the door, he rang the bell, he had his hand behind his back and he kept it behind his back and he made it clear, this is the gun, I have it behind my back. And when she came to the door, he pulled the gun out and shot her, indicating that he took her by surprise, that this was an ambush and a classic example of lying in wait. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one of his acts speaking to his not being totally out of his mind. The gun shop owner would not sell him a gun, and he asks his brother to buy the gun for him. And his brother did it. Right. That that really, I had forgotten about that. I found that stunning. And, and apparently his brother, well, obviously his brother knew that Robert had been troubled, that he obsessed about various female celebrities. And he buys him the gun, gives it to him and says, now don't use it. Yeah. I mean, the, the brother, to tell you, I, I, the brother, the sister, very upset by all this and very remorseful about any actions anything they might have done to help him. But I think at the time, the brother mistakenly thought that he would use the gun for plinking to go out and distract himself and thought that maybe that would be a good thing for him. And of course, that was wrong, but never thought that he was enabling him to commit a murder or that he was even contemplating doing something to someone. And obviously, he misread the situation, to put it very mildly. But I think that was his thinking at the time was that it would give him some other activity to distract him from whatever was troubling him and so went along with it. During the trial, something interesting happened. Bardo, sitting at the defendant's table, not moving, kind of in a waxed position through most of the trial. And then a 80s rock song by the group U2 was played. Someone, was it his defense attorney or was it Bardo himself that claimed that that song inspired him to do what he did? It was, he, there were a couple of songs that he said were inspirational to him or spoke to his state of mind, rather. That was one of them. The, the lawyer played it in order to show the way he reacted to it by rocking back and forth and going into some kind of mental state where he was inside the music kind of thing. And it was, it was weird, but not particularly effective in terms of showing that this was somebody not in touch with reality. It was just somebody who was obsessive, obsessive about everything. And that was yet another thing. In terms of his demeanor during the trial, he had nervous tics. He would pick at his, at his lips. He would rock sometimes. He would move in ways that were idiosyncratic. But he was reactive to what was going on around him. For the listeners, let me describe what he did. He kind of went from being not, not sedate Ted, but when that song came on, he became very animated, mm -hmm. kind of rocking back and forth, like I think probably many of us have done when we hear a song that we really, really like but it was so different than the way he had been. Do you think that had any effect on the judge? Oh, I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it. 
I mean, yes, it, it was it was unusual behavior. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, and I think we were all very aware, this was a very disturbed person. Whether he was appropriately diagnosed as being schizophrenic, I can't say. And I'm not an expert in that. And I, I'm not sure that Mr. Dietz was particularly necessarily agreed with on on these mm. things. But mm-hmm. but his reaction to the song was was strange, for sure. It was odd. Did it indicate someone who was out of his mind, insane, out of touch with reality? No, it indicated a no. very strange person who had an emotional reaction to the song that he felt was that he felt was very indicative of his state of mind. It certainly was provocative for him, but that would be about it. And I certainly doubt that, you know, why why would it impress a judge as being indicative of someone who didn't understand the nature and quality of his act or didn't what they really the defense was that Barda could not premeditate. That was their defense. So as a result, if you can't premeditate, then you don't have a first-degree murder. And if you don't have a first-degree mm-hmm. murder, you can't have a special circumstance. And that would have given him a sentence that gave him the possibility of parole. So that's what mm-hmm. they were going for, which was a realistic thing to go for. And I think probably the only viable argument they had. So the effort is to show a lack of premeditation. That's hard to do with all of the planning that he did. But his reaction to a song, I I can't see how that would be impressive to the judge, and I doubt it was. Totally agree. The judge wasn't affected by it because of the verdict that he eventually had. At any point during the trial or anything, did Bardo ever say anything like, I did it, I killed her, here's why, I would do it again, anything like that you're aware of? I would do it again. No, I don't remember him ever saying that. And in court, he didn't say anything. He didn't testify. In terms of the interview with Park Dietz, he did say, I shot her. Yeah, he admitted it. Did he express remorse? Not that I recall. No, no. Back in 1989, I don't think there in California, I don't think there was much in the way of stalking laws, actually, in California or, or anywhere. But things have changed. Things have changed quite a bit. What kind of legislation and protections for the public came out of this case? Yeah, when this case happened, the awareness of stalking was so limited. And that's when I met Gavin DeBecker, who was the preeminent expert, still is on stalking and matters of security and threat management. And thankfully, he came to my rescue when I first got the case to say, you know, these kind of defendants, they're a bird of a different feather. You need to know stuff about it. And we talked hours and hours and hours about the mentality of stalkers and what they do, how they go about what they do. And it was a fascinating education and very, very helpful. As a result, though, of, of this case, also Teresa Saldana, she was also attacked by a stalker. The laws did change. The number one thing is you can no longer go pay an investigator to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and get somebody's address. That cannot happen. And that's how Barda was able to get to Rebecca Schaefer. And now we have laws specifically targeting stalking that penalize it criminally and recognize that a stalker is not necessarily someone like Bardo, who is a stranger to Mm -hmm. the target. More commonly, it's an ex-boyfriend, ex-husband, ex-friend. That that sort of thing is the more common 
instance when you see stalking happen. But now we have not only laws that manage it, but also police officers that are aware of it and more sensitive to the warning signs and what needs to be done to handle situations so that it does not escalate to the point of damage or injury to someone. Do you think it's easier now for police to arrest a stalker or does a potential victim have to get a restraining order? How does it work? They don't have to. And I know that Gavin has in the past recommended that they not get a restraining order because it only provokes the stalker. Imagine that someone with a mentality to spend the time it takes to stalk another person who really kind of obliterates their own life in favor of going after this person and following them, trying to phone tap them, trying to take pictures of them. Imagine that you are so obsessed that you waste your life and your time doing this. Mm -hmm. This is a mentality that is quite different than most people's. And so it was his advice that you not get a restraining order, which tends to be a provocative act. Some will go ahead and do it. And police have said in the past that it helps in a court case to show that you're not just making this up or you're not just being paranoid about this person, that you went to the effort to get a restraining order. And therefore, it shows a seriousness in terms of the kind of behavior that you've been subjected to. So those are the two sides of the coin to it. I don't come down necessarily on either one. I do know that you don't need a restraining order to call the police when you're being stalked. You just need to be able to show that you are being stalked. And then the proof used to be much harder to get. We have ring cameras now, though. This is a helpful thing. There's closed circuit TV, citywide cameras that give you footage that can be found to show that someone is lurking, someone is stalking, and that's very helpful. Is there a difference between a celebrity being stalked than just, say, a regular person? Not legally. No, it's the same thing. To the extent that a celebrity has more layers of security, they may have a better chance at gathering evidence to prove they're being stalked. They have cameras, they have bodyguards, security guards, that sort of thing. And that's helpful. But in terms of punishment or in terms of being charged with anything, the charges are the same. I am frequently told, and I hear oftentimes somebody, a potential victim, will call the police and say, XYZ is happening. It's a guy I used to date or my ex-girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And the police say, we can't do anything until they, the bad guy, potential bad guy or bad girl, we can't do anything until they hurt you. But that's not true, is it? No, it's not true. They may prefer to have an injury to prove it. You know, I mean, I understand you want more proof, but that's definitely not the thing you want to encourage people to wait for in order oh, to yeah. report it. If you have somebody sitting outside your house on a consistent basis and they have no business being there, and especially if you have a prior relationship with this person that ended badly, you can certainly call the police and ask that they investigate. I do believe that there are lesser charges that can be brought that are short of an assault with a deadly weapon or an attempted murder sort of thing. I do think that there are lesser charges they can bring. So no, you shouldn't have to wait until you're actually in the hospital to get the police to act on this. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you browse homeowner reviews, compare quotes from multiple local pros, and even book a service instantly. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We live in a different time now than when this horrible murder happened. And the time we live in is the world of the internet, social media. All of that has emerged since Rebecca's murder. Do you think that the internet and the social media has made it easier for disturbed people to find the objects of their obsession? I think it did for a period of time. When social media first became widely known, it was a little bit ahead of the time when we got ring cameras and all kinds of home security things that can help us you know, protect us. And also, we were not as savvy about hiding our identity and hiding our personal information. But we have since started to close that gap. And so it's not that you can't get doxxed because we know people do all the time. But I think that people do have ways of protecting themselves now in ways that they certainly didn't back then. I mean, back then, there was a phone book, a white pages. You could find anybody's Mm -hmm. address at any time. Now, it's still, like I said, people can get doxxed, and they do. There are measures you can take to protect yourself, to keep your identity secret. You also do have cameras. That can be very helpful in terms of just a threat posed of being on camera. You know, when they try to approach you. So you see this more and more often on apps like Nextdoor and Citizen Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, where people's pictures, videos of people trying to steal, people trying to break in, get posted. So it it kind of works both ways. That said, you know, social media certainly does present a danger for those who are going to be targeted by someone. Which leads to my next question. As both a prosecutor and defense attorney, Do you have any suggestions for our listeners how to avoid becoming a target? That's tough. I mean, pick a better partner. You know, I mean, that's not so easy (laughs) to do. And I'm certainly no expert in that. But I have to say, it really is a question of not engaging, I think. You know, the best thing, really, sometimes the best answer is no answer. And rather, when you break up with someone, whether it's a friend or a partner, make a clean break. Make a clean break and do not continue to communicate because any form of communication, no matter how benign you want it to be, you want you feel badly, you hurt this person, you want to make them feel better. Continuing to engage only really aggravates, really. It provokes in, in a situation when you're talking about someone inclined to become a stalker, not a normal person, but someone who is inclined to become a stalker will only be provoked or encouraged in some way to continue to try and engage. So that would be the best advice I can think of really is, you know, make sure all of your security cameras are working and don't, don't accept any phone calls. If you don't recognize the number, don't go out by yourself at night. You know, all of these are just standard kinds of Mm self-protective things, but most of all, don't engage. Mm -hmm. Marcia, this case was really heartbreaking 
you're a mother, I'm a mother, these things, they do affect people that, you know, cops and agents and prosecutors and defense attorneys. How did this case affect you and how you practice law today? It was just a very emotional case. Honestly, it was so, it, it was so incredibly tragic. You have this beautiful young woman on the brink of stardom, very talented, lovely, by all accounts, you know, uniquely, not a bad word was said about her by anyone. She just seems like she was wonderful. She was funny. She was smart. She was sweet. She was kind. So a life taken, a life like that, such a particularly innocent, vulnerable person. It was very painful. The injustice of it was just very, very, very difficult to deal with. Very hard. And, you know, I don't know that it affected my practice of law, but it certainly affected me as a person. That kind of profound injustice is very difficult to deal with. It's kind of different when you have a mutual combat situation or you have more often than not, you have situations where they, people know each other and they get involved in a, in a confrontation in which they're both too drunk, whatever it might be. And somebody doesn't mean to, but does kill someone else. And that's a tragedy as well. But at least the person had a fighting chance. This is just, you know. Right. Yeah. She did not have a chance. No. No. I recall uh, when I was an agent, work cases where young people, especially young people, were killed, a child kidnapped and murdered. And my, at the time, my son was, sometimes he would, was the age of the victim of the case I was working, a six, seven, eight-year-old. And it is so hard to make a clean cut emotionally when you walk in your front door at night to be with your family. Mm-hmm. And it, it is very d- difficult, if not impossible, to put on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to wrap your kids up in a bubble? <laughs> you exactly. Want, right? <laughs> put the bubble in a cage and put the cage in a, in a cell block <laughs> so they never Right, can. right, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's- a, a moat, a moat full of alligators. Yeah. So, Marsha, you've been a prosecutor and you have been a defense attorney. Did your perspective on defendants and what juries should know about, quote, the person sitting at the defendant's table, did those change when you were sitting on the other side? I actually started out as a defense attorney. And therefore, I came in with a kind of different mindset, I think, than most who start out as prosecutors. I came Mm -hmm. in knowing I wanted to do the right thing for defendants. And then I was, as a prosecutor, I certainly wanted to do the right thing for the victims as well. So there was a balance there. And then going, I don't think my attitude changed about what I wanted the jury to know about the defendant. On either side, I want the jury to know what's relevant in terms of his state of mind, what he intended, because that's the only way to get a fair verdict. You want the jury to not just convict when it's appropriate, but you want them to convict of what he should really be convicted of. And that's why very often on appeal, the most frequent argument you have, or one of the many frequent arguments that you have, is that they were convicted of a crime that was much greater than what they actually did, than what was justified by the evidence. That's one. Another one is that the conviction was unfair because of jury instructions that were inappropriate. So it's very, very seldom that you're talking about factual innocence. You're more likely talking about a fair trial. And that was always on my mind from either side. So 
Hmm. Yeah, it's not vastly different. It's a little different. I mean, when you're working with a defendant, whether it's by virtue of an appeal or trial, you're going to establish a kind of connection with them because you get to know them as a person, more so, of course, than as a prosecutor, because you don't have that kind of contact. And if you do, you're in trouble. So you don't get to know them as much. As a defense attorney, you do. And so you can really get a feeling for, you know, I know he he was drinking and driving and he shouldn't have been, and, but he's not the guy he doesn't mean to, he didn't intend, even though he got into an accident and hurt someone very badly. And so you can understand the, the continuum of a person's life and what led them to this moment, even if you understand that what they did was wrong. And so it does give you more depth of understanding. But when it comes to the actual handling of the case, you're still going to be dealing with the law and what can be proven and what can't be. Do you ever miss being a prosecutor? And in your particular case, you were in the spotlight a lot. Yeah, I didn't really love that part of it. I don't miss that at all. I guess some people do like being the focus of that kind of attention. What always worried me about it was the way it can distort the trial, the way it can distort justice and impact the jury, impact the judge, impact the witnesses. All of this has a distorting effect on the way people behave. And that worried me because then you wind up with a trial that is focused on all the wrong things instead of the truth, instead of the evidence. It becomes kind of a circus of people performing for the camera. Yeah. and, And witnesses too. Witnesses will either show up to testify and exaggerate their role, exaggerate their importance, or they will have important information to give and they avoid it and avoid telling anyone because they don't want to be on camera. So one way or another, it can be bad news for both sides. So that's what I didn't like about it. And I have to say, I don't miss trial work. I did it for 14 years. That was enough. <laughs> and I and I moved on. And I really enjoy the writing. I write, I enjoy, you know, podcasting. I enjoy that sort of thing now. It's a nice, nice place to be. Tell us about what you're writing. You write fiction. I've written fiction. I wrote nine novels. The last one, The Fall Girl, just came out. And it's really fun to make stuff up, you know? I get to make up the stories. I get to make up the evidence. It's wonderful. Well, your books are very good. I've read them. And now I'm going to go get the next one. Marcia Clark, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your incredible experiences and insights. You are an inspiration. And Marcia, if I'm ever in a legal jam, you are going to be my first phone call. I'll be very glad to step up to your side with bail money. (laughs) It's been a pleasure, Candace. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. From Wondery and Tree Fort Media, this is Killer Psyche. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Story research and additional writing by Anne Liu. Mix and sound design by Joshua Morales. Senior audio producer, Maxwell Carney. Head of audio, 
Tom Monahan. Renee Levesque is our production manager. Lindsay Whistler, Colin Modell, and Jada Williams are production assistants. Oscar Guido is the producer from Treefort Media. From Amazon Music and Wondery, the producer is Stephanie Joaquin. And the co-executive producer is Julie Burke. Lastly, our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort and Marshall Louie and Aaron O'Flaherty for Wondery. The series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This mother lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the Wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts